We are finishing up our series that we've done on the book of Galatians, and uh, we're going to be pivoting into Advent next week. Uh, so as we finish it out, uh, it's kind of apropos, I think, that we're doing it whenever people have gathered for uh, family gatherings. And I'm sure that uh, for many of us, whenever we do that, uh, sometimes there's politics involved, sometimes there's... Uh, uh, lots of um, goodwill and, and, and glad to see you again. And sometimes there's lingering tensions and everything in between. I did a little survey uh, on some people in the last service and I asked, um, uh, did you have a good Thanksgiving? And many of them said yes. And I said, well, what would you do different? And one person who had like 30 people in their house said, would probably reduce it down to about five next time. I said, yeah, there'd be a lot of chaos for sure. Um, and, you know, others said, you know, it was really good, uh, but uh, I wish that there were uh, more family that could have come, and, and given circumstances, it wasn't a possibility. So you have everything in between. You have uh, people saying there's too many people, and you have people saying there's not enough people. And regardless of what the uh, extent of the discontentment is, uh, there's always a sense in the backdrop I noticed that people said, but I am, I am grateful, I am thankful. And it gave us a time to hit the pause button and say, uh, we need to count our blessings. But I'm not sure that that happens in every house in the country whenever people gather. Uh, online, I, I looked at some survival strategies for Thanksgiving. And uh, things you could do when people started talking about uh, Donald Trump, for example. Or when people started talking about, you know, their views on immigration or pick your political topic. And it seems like there's this sense that you don't want to get too far below the surface. Otherwise, you're going to have uh, this sense of division about opinions regarding uh, what those things mean personally to different people. And it is always a threat, I think, whenever you look at people who gather in any, in any number, uh, there's always, if nothing else, there's always strong opinions one way or the other. And if nothing else, uh, there's always the possibility of misunderstanding. And in all of those vulnerabilities for uh, what happens when people gather, the Bible, I think, as we've gone through Galatians, does a pretty good job of helping us to outline what an ideal gathering is, and maybe when we think about Thanksgiving, what an ideal Thanksgiving is. Um, and as, um, as, as we just pause for a minute on that topic, um, uh, this morning, as uh, we just round out this whole Thanksgiving season, I, I think I'd like to solicit from you guys, as, as people who are hearing a one-sided conversation, uh, what it is that you are grateful for in this season? Is there anyone that would like to express gratitude about anything? Anything that brought you joy? Anything that you had a newfound appreciation for? Grandkids. You know, there was a day when I stood up here and grandkids weren't even a thing. It was kids. And now it's grandkids. And is it as awesome as they say it is? Okay, good, good. Well, Seeing if my kids are around anywhere. Um, and if they are, uh, um, clock's ticking. So <laughs> looking forward to that day whenever I can say, yeah, um, along with Becky and Chuck, um, these uh, little people uh, have captivated my, my attention and my heart. Any other blessings? Family in general. Family in general? Okay. 
most important, other than our relationship with God, uh, the most important relationship we can have. Any other blessings? Yeah, yeah. It's always hard to get to know people personally in any setting, but hopefully the church of all places facilitates that, um, and, and, and you help that for other people too. So it works both ways. Anything else? Okay. Well, let's just move on into our, our message. Um, we are looking at something that I think fosters that sense of not only gratitude, but the ability for us to relate to one another in the healthiest, healthiest ways possible. And uh, it's coming from Galatians chapter 5. Hopefully, if you've been a believer for a long time, Galatians 5 is something that you have ran into uh, from time to time. And for, for some, perhaps, even something that you use as a, uh, a way of checking yourself. And for me as a pastor, I, I always tell new believers, if they want to see, if really truly see if God is working in your life, you don't have to go any farther than the list that's in there regarding the fruit of the Spirit. If you see uh, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, and, and you see it happening in your life, then don't let anybody tell you that God's not at work in your life, because He is. Uh, those things are sourced in Him. But before you get to that place, you realize those qualities that go to make up uh, the ideal human being, as Paul would define it, are qualities that stand in stark contrast to a set of characteristics that define our life apart from Christ. And um, I'm going to show a very quick video on, um, fr from the, um, the Bible Project. And they did one on Galatians chapter 5, but they also is on the whole book basically. But I'm going to zoom in on Galatians chapter 5 because we've been talking about that book. Uh, so let's go ahead and show that video if we can, and then I'll get into the message. The laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the Spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf, and now he lives in us through the Spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, they destroy relationships and whole communities. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. 
This requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit. As Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus' people fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians is all about. If everybody, if ever, each of us got that, which I, I'd be the first to tell you, I don't get that fully as far as taking it and, and living it out. But if each of us got that in a way that it was our default mechanism, that every time we did something, we would do it according to the fruit of the Spirit. Um, I don't know if we can back up that, that, that video just a little bit and show uh, the fruit of the Spirit section on it. Uh, see if that's a possibility. And I just want to pause it right there um, at, that, at that frame uh, while I'm, uh, while, while I'm kind of going into this text. If you have your Bibles with you, we've been looking at uh, uh, Galatians, um, all, all uh, four chapters leading up to this point. But now we're going to take a peek at um, verses 1 and then um, 13 following to the end of the chapter. And basically, as you look at that chapter, it says, I think, in a lot of ways, almost everything you need to know. Uh, it starts off by telling us, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, if a person who comes into this church is, is, is seeking for something that will be a dramatic change in their life, like myself and, and many of us who are in the room... There was a point in time where we felt like we were being held back from walking into things that are good and having relationships with other people that were good. And yet, uh, maybe because of our, our, our upbringing, things that we were taught, perhaps God wasn't even a thing in our conversation in our homes when we were children. Um, and maybe our attendance at church was Christmas or Easter, and sometimes it was uh, pick one or the other. And with that backdrop, there's not a whole lot. Let's go ahead and back that frame up to that completed Fruit of the Spirit one. If you can drag that perfect, just click it on right there. And we're just going to settle in uh, in, that, in that spot, because essentially that says everything that we need to hear today. But when, when, when Paul said it is it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Uh, there are people who walk into these doors, and when they hear that, it changes everything because their whole life orientation um, dramatically takes on a new power and a, a, a new perspective and a new posture towards the things around them. A person who comes into this place and has elements of baggage from living according to the rules out there will probably have some of this stuff that they've carried in with them. If you look at that image of the cross in the middle, you'll see something that's kind of pouring into it. And that is what Paul describes as the deeds of the flesh. 
And essentially, it is a definition of any person's life that is lived without any consideration for how God can be a part of their lives. It is a way of referring to people and circumstances and relating to those things through these defining characteristics. He starts off by saying, and the, and the deeds of the flesh. And you hear that word, and it may not mean anything to you because you don't hear people uh, from Hollywood talking about deeds of the flesh per se. You don't hear people on the internet saying, you know, tell me a little bit more about the deeds of the flesh. There's kind of an instinctive sense that as we hear that, we know that it can't be entirely good. But if you were to break it down and you were to say right out of the gate, the deeds of the flesh are fornication, if you look at the English Standard Version, which is the Pew Bible. And what it means by that, I don't know that you have to explain it, but if you take that as an F word, and you all have heard the F word, right? Um, you haven't? Uh, in in my, my wife's school with elementary kids, there's an F word, and you don't say the F word. And it has to do with gas. And I'll leave it at that. Okay? But it does get more dramatic as they go up the ladder of, um, of education. And I think if, it, if that F word doesn't get redefined uh, in the classroom setting, I think each of my kids can tell you they discovered the F word on the bus. Now, the important thing is that they don't repeat it. And as far as I know, I've never heard them say it. So that's good. Good job, guys. Um, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't crossed their mind. And it's a word that basically comes from something that is defined as beautiful in the Bible. Uh, uh, actually, a mandate that we have to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply. But it's become something driven less by God's covenantal boundaries and more by what we want, it, what we want that to mean in our own lives. And as a result, what's happened is um, sexuality has gone from being something that is to be celebrated and that's beautiful to something that is boundaryless, self-serving, self-gratifying, and it becomes a, a monster of lust that you have to feed. And we're definitely in that culture. And what the Apostle Paul says, if the F word is something that you are too caught up in, it may be that you've been wired to look at that part of your existence the wrong way. And then he goes on to talk about a few other lesser sins, if you want to say lesser by comparison, uh, to the two right in the middle. Idolatry and sorcery. Where people perhaps go from the benign, you know, sleeping with somebody that is not covenantally uh, one that you're committed to. Bless you. And as she, as, as, um, as, as God takes that a little bit further, he says, and idolatry. But most of us don't think of idolatry as anything but little statues that perhaps represented a, a deity from another culture. But isn't it interesting that on the, on, on, on just the other side of the Thanksgiving meal after the food coma, 
is a ritual that many of us have participated in, and that is to look in the ads and to see what the sales are, and then to fight the crowds to go to the places that offer those goods one day only-ish, or however Black Friday is defined by that, that particular vendor. And so you, you do dedicate a lot of the time, energy, and attention to obtaining those things. And at the end of the day, and I know some of you are saying, all right, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Well, it does happen in this environment. And, and I can tell you that I, I have looked, you know, at Good Friday sales to see things that had to do with hiking gear, um, Dodge Challengers. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. But the point is, what those things do in their own way is they start to consume us and define us. And the definition of an idol is just something you dedicate um, uh, 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 an inordinate amount of time, energy, and attention to. Uh, the Bible even talks about an idol that is dedicated to money or consumerism called mammon. And um, there is even an empowerment behind that. Well, not to go too far down that road, other than to say that when we talk about empowerment, interestingly enough, we went and saw a movie last night. Um, it was um, uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grinder something. Nobody knows. Anybody see Fantastic Beasts? Has anybody seen Harry Potter? Okay, same person doing a different story, hoping to launch a whole new franchise along those lines. Well, we watched it and it was entertaining. It was something to do. But what I discovered was as I'm watching this, I'm seeing the themes get darker and darker. And I mentioned in the course of this series, when we're talking about the different um, aspects of the church in Galatia, one of the things that some people, the pagan side of the church was caught up in, was forms of, of sorcery. You know, trying to conjure from the spirit realm through a, a, a ritualized effort the favor of unseen deities so that you can have their power for the things that you need in your life. Or... If you're like me in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when the Harry Potter books came out, many very fundamentalist versions of the church said, don't read that stuff because it, it celebrates witchcraft and the occult and stuff like that. And a lot of us just kind of ignored that and played it down and read it as entertainment and sort of left it at that. Which isn't perhaps too hard to do whenever you're grounded in the Christian worldview and you critique it a little bit but you find yourself entertained. But just imagine the person who reads those books and that becomes their go-to, their frame of reference. When they start characterizing people that they see around them, they're using characters from that story. I mean, have you ever called somebody Voldemort? And who was the busybody um, lady in, in, in the movie that um, you just, you almost love to hate if you could say that would be a good thing for a Christian. Do you know who I'm talking about? What is her name? Christian, what's her name? Dolores Umbridge. And she's a type of person that you can find in your workplace. You can find her in, in any, any variety of environments. The person who is trying to tell you what to do, trying to be in control, and the person that a lot of people don't like. 
And if you look at the different types of characters, you see people saying, that reminds me of this person or that person. Because they have no frame of reference. So where am I going with that? Well, I've surfaced to the... Um, I brought to the surface in this series the idea of, of witchcraft. And mentioned how a couple of weeks ago we were in um, uh, New York at uh, Cornell University. And um, right on campus we get out of the car and we look at the door for somebody's um, uh, campus uh, housing. And there is an insignia, insignia of a, um, uh, that, that a witch lives there. And you might not think about that too much. Because when the Harry Potter books came out, there were 89,000 women that were involved in that form of sorcery. But interestingly enough, right now where you have an increasing religious absence when it comes to Christianity, that number has actually, according to Christian News Service uh, last week, they came out with a... Um, with a statistic that said 1.5 million um, women are involved in witchcraft. And maybe you've seen that, but when you go from 89,000 to 1.5 million, it tells me that something has caused something to change here. But I'm not going to pile on Harry Potter, but I am going to say that it is a place where it helps you to at least think in those categories about casting spells about getting power over other people's lives, but trying to use it in a benevolent and, 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 and positive way. And the Apostle Paul says, that is an approach that Jesus set you free from. It is, it is a pathway that for a believer you should not go down because you're giving permission for malevolent unseen beings to attach themselves to you, thus leading you back into captivity. But as Paul goes on to describe this list, and he shows them on, on the screen there in different forms, he thinks about things that perhaps if you're not caught up in all of that, that may be at work in your life and in mine. Jealousy, fits of rage, dissension, things that are hit a little bit closer to home. Because honestly, it's easy to look at what other people have and say, I want that. Or we could take it a step further and say, I'm so consumed by wanting that, uh, that I don't, I don't want them, I want to have that, but I don't want them to have it. And that is a step lower called envy. And then when you look at fits of rage, it is this idea that something happened that is out of my control, and, and I am extremely upset about how these circumstances have transpired or I don't like the response of that other person and it just is indicative of how we function. If you went and shopped on Black Friday, I'm guessing you might have saw a little bit of that. And maybe you even prayed for those people that had fits of rage. Well, as you expand that list, the Apostle Paul is essentially saying, you know, if you're, if you're involved in these things, be very careful because in effect what they're doing is stirring up chaos in your lives that God has never intended to be there in the first place. But here's the thing. When we were in the garden, it 
those things weren't in play. We had a right relationship with God and with each other, male and female. And it was this idea that everything that we needed in life would be sourced in him. But once we were thrust out of the garden, it was just us versus the world. And therefore, it's a power grab. It is a means of tightening up the ranks so that we can feel secure. It is a way of looking for a basis of having value and saying, at least I'm better than the other person. And it just begins to fuel this whole train of thought that the Apostle Paul says is the way of the flesh. The way of life apart from God. And what Paul has said is, you can't unring the bell. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't, you, you can't take the fall and, 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 and put everything right again. In the way that you might think that, the only way that you could think that you could. And what the Jewish people were doing was taking the law and they were saying, do this, 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 and this. And you will put the garden back in its proper order. But it runs much deeper than that. Because what everybody was saying was, the harder you try to be religiously perfect, perfect, the more you come to understand that there are just layers and layers and layers of darkness inside of us. That it is a complete redo that has to happen. Not, not just a redo, it's a, it's a reset. And what the Apostle Paul said was, when you look at those deeds of the flesh, it's about as good as it's going to get. Apart from Jesus. You can try as you like. But you're not going to transform those characteristics. You may get better at hiding them. You may get better at projecting to other people that you're a good person and you got it together. But the first time somebody cuts you off in traffic, what are you going to do? The first time uh, you get cheated out of your place in line at the, at the store whenever there's a sale right across the street and they're flying fast off the shelf... What you going to do? The first time you get this itchy feet that the grass is always greener, what you going to do? And just on and on. Whatever we think we've got settled, it just takes one event with all the things being in the right place at the right time to undo the whole thing. And so when Jesus came, the Apostle Paul says, we can't through any kind of occultic or pagan orchestration make the world right. And we can't through trying to define what it is that would help us to put everything back in the box again by obeying laws to make everything right. The Apostle Paul said, as we've studied in this series, the only thing that can make it right is Jesus. And the only way that we can, in our own lives, get right again is through Jesus. And as he defines what that means with greater clarity, he essentially says that when Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended 40 days later, he gave us the Holy Spirit 
And now the Spirit of God is deposited into the situation, into your life and mine. Something from outside the box, outside the whole, the whole playing field, out the, outside of the whole world, has entered in and entered into our world as a way of resetting everything. And some of us have said, Lord, I need you to set me free. And God said, by the power of the blood of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Some people have said, that's great. Now I know I'm not going to hell. And so I can just leave here because the church is full of hypocrites anyway. And I can go and do what I want because at least Jesus saved me. And there's no question that we are saved from those forces of evil through the power of the blood of Jesus. But Paul doesn't leave it there because freedom for him has two parts. One is freedom from those things, but the harder part is freedom for. That is to do the right thing when you need to do the right thing as you're called to do the right thing. And that's a harder job is honestly, how many of you after eating a Thanksgiving Day meal felt like going up, getting up and working in a soup kitchen or feeding the homeless or doing something like that? Um, there are strong pulls that keep us from engaging with the problems in the world around us. And according to the flesh, some days we're on, some days we're off. But according to the spirit, something begins to work in us and through us, helping us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise find ourselves doing. Now, you know what I, I love about Christmas is all of the ornamentation that happens and the way that it showcases a celebration leading up to um, the recognition of the birth of Christ. Advent is really structured in that way. And one of the one of the, the, the keystones of that whole experience is a Christmas tree. Now, the church has been mixed in its view of the Christmas tree over, over time, but let me just hang with me for a second. If you've ever decorated a Christmas tree, and maybe even purchased ornaments for a Christmas tree, and then seen the Christmas tree after you've assembled everything the way you want it, there is a sense of joy that comes from that, isn't there? Because it's, it's, a, it's a symbol that represents memories, and family gatherings. Um, it is something that is only celebrated once a year. And when you look at the charm and the magnificence of a well-trimmed Christmas tree, you find it almost enchanting. But what's not so enchanting is what happens probably after New Year's Day or on New Year's Day. All the bins from your garage come out. All of the ornaments get taken down. They get placed in the bins. The Christmas tree, if it's like ours, because we seem to be allergic to pine, uh, is disassembled. And it's had about 20 years of disassembling, and my wife has said... You know, I don't think it can take any more disassembling. Uh, so we're going to get through one more year, uh, and probably if there's any pine needles left, doctor it up like on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, get through it and be done. 
But all things being equal, when that Christmas tree is lit up and it's ornamented, it looks so beautiful and so attractive until you take it down and you realize it's all kind of fake. And what the Apostle Paul is saying more or less is you can put all kinds of ornamentation on your humanity and even dress it up religiously, but if it's you putting that stuff on there, eventually it's going to come off. Eventually, it's going to show itself for being fake. By contrast, if you drive by any of the fruit farms, you'll notice something happening in the spring. Uh, they're, they're getting these trees ready, apple trees and other kinds of trees that bear fruit. And as they do that, uh, you take an initial look at them and they look pretty gangly. But you also know that all things being equal, if the, if the weather's favorable, if, um, you know, if, if insects or blight don't set in, that you can expect in due time that the programming inside of that tree is going to tell each of the buds on those branches, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. And those branches will respond to that, to that, to that compelling initiative and bear beautiful fruit in time. And it just organically happens. The, the, isn't it an absurd image to think that tree, while nobody was looking at night, went to Walmart, bought a whole bunch of apples, slapped them on there, and said, look at me. I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, we know that it just, it, it, it doesn't even have the ring of reality to it. But what Paul says is you need to pay attention to the fruit that God is creating in your life and trying to manifest in your life. You need to, you need to cultivate your life in such a way that it, that, that, it, that it begins to emerge in different parts of your life that there is beautiful fruit that can come out of here. And by beautiful fruit, I mean love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I mean, imagine every Thanksgiving gathering on the planet is characterized by all of those nine qualities. Wouldn't that be awesome? And some of you, I know who you're thinking about. Like, yeah, even that person. But the truth of the matter is, when God did this huge reset, he said, my goal is for anyone who believes in faith, who trusts in faith, the promises of God as laid out by Abraham and as fulfilled by Jesus, if you trust that this is the big reset, this is the big opportunity to be set free, this is the power of the blood of Jesus, this is the good news that is at work in the world, that is transformational, if you just believe and trust and, and, and consent to the reality that God has put forth a game-changing effort to make all things new, including yourselves, then that fruit can begin to work in your life. And it's a joy for me as a pastor to be around people where I see those qualities and even experience it in my own life. 
But it's also a reality for me as a pastor to know that there are times when I kind of go back to that, that fleshly state again. Where I, I kind of get offended or my ego sets in or I get angry or I get jealous about something and on and on it goes. And I realize I've been feeding on something that's bearing some bad fruit. I heard the story about a shepherd who had two sheepdogs and a guy was out on a, on a hike and he ran across this shepherd and he saw the two sheepdogs and he said uh, to, the, to the shepherd, which of the two is the strong one? And you know what the shepherd said? The one that I feed the most. And as I just ponder that for a second, I realize that one of the reasons why it's so, so important to habitually, regularly do things in your life that bring you into the presence of God, whether it's the word or whether it is through singing, whether it is through praying, whether it is through being around a community of like-minded people, that will feed your soul in a way that good fruit can come out. And it doesn't end there for the Lord. Because the Lord, like the rest of us, wants to have a huge Thanksgiving gathering. And he, week by week, gives us a trial run at a Thanksgiving table, the Eucharist. It's a Greek word that means Thanksgiving. And it is our way of posturing ourselves towards God and towards each other because of the cleansing, healing blood of Jesus in a covenantal relationship that creates a boundary for how we function and it defines how we're actually going to function forever. And so every Sunday we gather and we give thanks around this table because of the table that God is preparing for the thanksgiving that is the end all and be all of thanksgiving. It's not just pilgrims coming from Europe because they are heavily oppressed by the constraints of a religious political uh, 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 power that is saying you can't do it that way. It's much deeper than that. It's pilgrims who say we've been eating at this table and living in a mixed bag world and bearing some good fruit and bearing some bad fruit, but longing for the day when our hearts and our minds will be totally aligned and surrender to you. And every time we do something, good fruit comes out. This really is a staging area for that. A probationary area for that. Because God's end game is to make us that community. And what Paul is saying when he says, if you follow the deeds of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What he's basically saying is, if you're so aligned with those things, you can't bring them with you. And if you're so consumed by these things that they've consumed you, it's going to keep you out as well. But it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Here's one of the reasons why I, I, I wonder if witchcraft has become sort of like a plan B for a lot of people. Because some people when they see us, and I'm not saying you guys, and they see what's happening out there, and they're saying, 
what's the difference between people out there and people in, or in here? Because the whole plan from the beginning has never been to coercively force people to go to church, but rather to woo them into a place that says, this is a better designed way of life centered in the things of God. Or oddly enough, when people relate to one another, they don't think much about themselves, they just think about the other person. They don't need to think much about themselves because God has already said, you are my child, I have given you a new identity, I have set you free, you are of worth and value beyond any standard around you. I have given you a calling and that is to be obedient and to express those beautiful ornaments of fruit in whatever environment that you're in so that people can see and say, I'd like to have some of that. Not the kind that Eve saw on the tree and said, I desire that so that I can be my own God but rather the kind that is the result of someone who hung on a tree and said, by this, I will draw all men unto me. And when he does, he sets us free. He pours out his love. And then he begins to bear fruit in our lives. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a day when any person could look at any Christian and not think they're perfect, but know that the defining characteristics of them skew strongly towards the defining characteristics of Jesus. I sometimes wonder if we haven't got too hung up on the I'm saved from and I got my fire insurance paid up, but haven't paid a whole lot of attention to I'm saved for bearing fruit, being part of the light of the world, helping people to know that there is a, there's a different way. There's a third way that's Jesus' way. And it starts with us trusting that whatever it is that keeps us captive, Jesus can set us free. And when he does, he pulls us into a relationship with him. And maybe you haven't stepped into that path yet to be drawn into his presence. And maybe today is a day that God is saying, it's time. You need to stop trying to do it all on your own. And bring me in. And I'm a good God. And I love you more than you will ever know. And I want to bring this fruit to bear in your life. So you go from becoming sort of subhuman and all of those deeds of the flesh. To being a new human in who we are in Christ. And every Sunday we offer an invitation. To be drawn into that new way. That reset. That thing that couldn't be done without somebody coming from the outside into our world and into our lives. Have you invited him in?
And trust me, when you do, He will begin to allow fruit to emerge in your life. He'll begin to change you. And then He will incorporate you into a body of people who hopefully are on the same page with this game plan and are like the apple trees at Huffman being pruned on a continual basis from that which used to be to that which is going to be. And maybe God's pruning you right now and it's very painful because at least the thing about sin, if we've habituated ourselves to it, at least it's familiar, at least we know that territory. But don't allow that to keep you from moving on because God is going to put you into a new territory with a new normal and a new way and hopefully a new people, not perfect people, but a new people who desire to love him and love others like he did. And hopefully the fruit of their lives will show. So church, if we are going to be the church and people are not going to be drawn into alternative religions, then we got to show the fruit. And my friends, if you are outside of that community, it's not exclusive. It is always inclusive. If you are made in God's image, which everyone is, then you are welcome to become part of a new humanity in Jesus. And I just want to invite you into that space. And I hope that the words that I've said, not just my words, but I hope they are words that are resonant with the words of Scripture so they can speak to your hearts. Would you bow with me as we close? Father, thank you for giving us the gift of your word, which reveals so much about who you are and who we are. Thank you so much that when we look at all of those vices that are listed and we say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's what I've done. You look at us with eyes staring down from a blood-stained cross and you say, this is what I've done so that you don't have to be bound by those things anymore. That your guilt and your shame can be removed as far as the east is from the west and you can be made whole again. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have offered that to us. And where that message has gotten distorted, Lord, help us to see with a new clarity. And where that message has become convoluted in our own lives, help us to be more aligned with you. So that when people see us, they see the image of you. And it's an image that is filled and framed by grace. Where all of us are one at the foot of the cross. And none of us are better than the other. And as empty vessels, we are filled by you. And we thank you, Father. It is through no doing of our own that any of this happens other than our willingness to say, I'm tired of the slavery. I'm tired of being held captive. I'm tired of a substandard, subhuman way of thinking and looking. And I need a season of refreshing.
something that will enable me to love like I should, have joy like you can, only you can offer, to know a peace that passes all understanding, and on it goes. Lord, help us to walk into those realities as you offer them and as we embrace them and as we remove things from our lives that they would otherwise fill and then we take them and put them in that place. I just pray for each of us here, here that we would hear these things and know that it is your purpose so that we can be the people that you call us to be. And with that in mind and that meal in mind that's on the other side, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.